Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, we're going to look at how efficient and clean buses can be by looking at a new type of bus system called bus rapid transit, which could take a lot of carbon out of the air and help prevent uh, the rapid heating of our environment. So we're going to be looking at that with Stan Sokolow, but we'll do that in just a little while. And we have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. You can also just pull any of over 70 individual programs off that fairly new website. That's planetwatchradio.com. And we want to give special thanks to Michael Zwirling for sponsoring this program on local radio station KSCOAM Santa Cruz. And a special hello to all of our listeners in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in the Carborough area, and also to our listeners in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to Planet Watch. We're very happy you've tuned in today. Like we do every week, we're going to listen to a few news stories from our interns from Cabrillo College, and to kick it off will be Tommy Martin. 2,000 years ago, Romans were sending lead flying into the air as they smelted ores to make silver coins. These lead emissions then drifted thousands of miles, landing on the frozen tundra of Greenland. Researchers analyzing a nearly 1,400-foot-long ice core sample from the frozen island have discovered that layers of lead can be linked to major historical events. More than 21,000 measurements of lead and other chemicals helped the researchers build a timeline of ancient pollution and output. This data can help to inform researchers about economic productivity, imperial expansion, wars, and plagues. The highest levels of sustained lead pollution were linked with the height of the Roman Empire, followed by a sharp decline, which coincides with the Antonine Plague. How about that? Someday they'll look at this era as the plastic era. <laughs> no doubt. Well, with another story is Maya Rodriguez, one of our interns. Researchers at the University of East Anglia found that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would save the majority of the world's plant and animal species from climate change-related extinction. Previous research focused on the benefits of limiting warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times, which is the upper limit set by the Paris Agreement. This is the first study to consider how limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would benefit species globally. Unlike previous studies, these researchers also took a look at insect species as well. According to scientists, the, global, the current global warming trajectory is around 3 degrees Celsius, which would cause almost 50% of instincts, ins, in, I'm sorry, insects to lose half of their geographical range. The study concludes that if warming is limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2100, then more species can maintain or even increase their geographical range. And I've got a little comment related to that. Uh, it's just come out that we have now had, just in case you had any doubts about the reality of global warming, um, we've had 400 consecutive months now of global average temperatures above the 20th century global average temperature. Now, that's a pretty powerful statistic. 400 months is about 33 years. So there you go. Thank you, Joe. And with another story, you know, I've been in the Sierras, as many people have, who have visited California. And um, for those of us who like to go recreate up there, I was shocked to see the number of dead trees. And two years ago, I went to Idaho, and there were almost no trails you could go on that weren't littered with fallen pine trees, mostly from bark beetles. And while some of the rangers told us it was a natural thing, 
um, the exceedingly warm temperatures we've just been discussing as well as a long drought have exacerbated the problem and now a new study out of the University of Washington which Adam's going to read about has a lot to say to us about it doesn't just affect us here on the west coast it's actually possibly going to affect the growth of plants in a completely different part of the country which is very surprising so here's that story from Adam Mussel. <clears throat> California has recently experienced a large die-off in forests due to drought, insects, and disease made worse by climate change. California forests have lost more than 130 million trees since 2010. New research indicates if a whole forest disappears, this creates effects in the atmosphere that can impact vegetation on the other side of the country. The University of Washington study showed that drastically reducing forest cover in the west was causing small changes to vegetation on the east coast um, to do, due to impacts on the weather patterns. Similar to El Nino, the atmospheric changes wrought by reduced forests created a ripple effect further away. More study is needed to explain the exact mechanism at work. That's a really interesting study, that, that forest would actually create its own atmosphere and change things far away from the immediate effects. But if you've ever walked into a clear-cut area and felt the temperature difference um, amplify that times a giant swath of forest like the Sierras, and you can start to imagine it would indeed start to have a weather impact. Yeah, they have a word for that kind of thing. It's called teleconnections. Um, there's one more story I want to bring up now. This is really big news, uh, big bad news. Just kind of surfaced this week. A study came out showing that, uh, you know, there was this great environmental and policy triumph back in the 80s, the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. We basically, through science, figured out what was going wrong with the ozone layer, and it was going really wrong really fast, and the human race and most of ecosystems on the world were in grave danger. We solved that problem. However, just lately it has come to light that a bunch of the offending chemicals are back. They are illegal. They have been banned, but they seem to be coming from somewhere in East Asia. And our uh, interview guest back uh, about months ago, Jim Elkins from NOAA, Boulder, uh, was one of the people on the team that has brought this to light. We'll talk more about this soon because it's really serious. And, uh, well, I don't know the latest on what the prospects are for... I mean, since those gases are inert and they don't break down until they get way up above the ozone layer, it's going to be really hard to figure out exactly where they're coming from and how to deal with the offenders. But uh, this, is, this is serious business, so stay tuned. It's interesting that all the technology used to spy on people couldn't be used to figure out where the chemicals are being emitted and catch the perpetrators. So maybe we'll have a whole new generation of science sleuths that are figuring this stuff out so we can stop them before they do it again. Well, we always promise you that we won't just bring you terrible news <laughs> from the planet and human beings and what they're doing to it, which we normally keep that promise and we'll do that today. Um, Transportation, I've heard varying numbers, and Joe can probably correct me, accounts for a very large amount of global warming. Um, emissions from tailpipes is a huge problem that puts CO2 into the atmosphere, acting like a giant blanket around the Earth and heating it up much faster. And in order to stop that business, we have to figure out different ways of getting people around other than individual car trips. If you look in your commute which you probably, if you are someone who works more than a mile or two away, do in a car, look around you and see how many people are not in the carpool lane. It's surprising. They're willing to sit in traffic to have their individual cars. So how do we get large numbers of them out? That is 
occupied the imagination of Stanley Sokolow. He is a Santa Cruz resident who's been advocating that the Regional Transportation Commission here in Santa Cruz County adopt a special kind of bus transportation called Bus Rapid Transit, otherwise known as BRT. He's going to talk with us about BRT and how he became interested in it, although he is not a rapid transit professional. Dr. Sokolow is a retired orthodontist. So what do teeth straightening have to do with straightening out drivers? We will find out. He became interested in bus rapid transit when he saw some of the videos about a bus system in Adelaide, Australia and Curitiba, Brazil, where buses are being used almost like light rail systems in, are in other cities. So uh, as we are here in California, gridlocked many times, any kind of way to move people better and more environmentally consciously um, would be widely welcomed. So welcome to the show, uh, Stanley. Thank you. Do you want me to call you Stan? Stan, yes, Stan is great. You have great teeth, by the way. There you go. Show the folks. (laughs) I would expect as much. So really, no, how did you go from um, orthodontia to to bus rapid transit? Well, I've had a lot of interests over my life, but uh, I just know that our city and county here are strangulated on our freeway so i've become interested in trying to figure out what can be done to improve that and the county is doing a study a major study they've done major studies over the decades and nothing seems to get done very much but uh they have come up with recommendations in those studies to do bus rapid transit um and i'm hoping that the current study will come out with uh you know showing that it's actually a good way to go so what is it? Why don't you so, elaborate yeah. what is bus rapid transit? You know, when we think of bus travel, it has unpleasant uh, attributes to it. You know, you get on a bus, it stops almost at every block. It's stuck in the traffic like the cars are in congestion. Uh, people don't like the to ride on the buses. So um, in um, Curitiba, Brazil, in the early 1970s, the mayor, whose name was Jaime Lerner, um, had, uh, was faced with the problem that his city was large and growing, and everybody told him, a city your size needs to have a subway. He looked at the cost and said, we cannot afford to build a subway. We're going to do the best we can with improving bus transit. So he redesigned the city plan so that there was a street, a main street going in and out of the city that had uh, bus lanes only for buses. They built special bus stations uh, designed like uh, they were built out like glass tubes with the floor of the bus station at the same height as the floor of the bus. So when the bus arrived, the doors of the bus would open, the doors of the tube would open, people would get off, get on, just like on a subway. They didn't have to line up at the front of the bus and pay for their ticket because they bought it before they got into the tube. And it, it made everything fast. They put the stations farther apart so there weren't these stops every block or two. And it made travel much faster. It was very popular. And over the decades, they imp- enhanced it with more buses, longer buses. Volvo built them a special bus that is uh, 25 meters long, whereas the standard bus is 12 meters long how many people can it move at once that that whole that, system? that triple that double articulated volvo bus the really big one can move about 250 people 
Um, and it, that, what's a typical bus, you know, like a diesel it's, bus? It's, it's usually about 40 people, maybe a little more if you count people crammed into standing. So um, this makes sense for really big cities, not so much little towns and stuff, right? Yeah, the idea is that it has a high capacity for cities that have a big population, and, but not so big that they need subways or light rail. It's a competitive system to with light rail, but it costs less. At least that's what motivated Curitiba to do this. Um, you have to look at the specifics of every city and every BRT system because their, their street systems may be more expensive to refit for bus rapid transit, some more than others. Ideally, you should have a separate corridor. Fortunately, here in, in Santa Cruz County where we live, uh, there is a railroad corridor that's not being used very much. It's almost abandoned. Uh, and so now the debate is, should we rebuild the train there for passenger service, because it requires a lot of upgrading to do that, or replace the tracks with a busway for bus rapid transit? And bus rapid transit has some features that are better than trains. The buses can get off of the busway and go to locations in the city where there's high demand, you know, universities and so on, um, whereas trains are stuck on the tracks. So you need to take a bus to get from the train station to the bus terminal where you transfer to another bus that takes you to your destination. With BRT, you can cut out some of those transfers and make what they call a single-seat ride. There's a story about Curitiba. Curitiba that I read somewhere, and I'm now forgetting where, but I read this story about the mayor who decided he was going to be radical and just get rid of all the cars in the main part of downtown. And he did it like overnight. He just yeah. closed down the main avenue where all the cars are clogging the downtown. And in order to enforce, remind people they weren't supposed to drive there, he got butcher paper and just covered the whole street with butcher paper and gave a bunch of kids crayons and markers and set them loose and so suddenly there was a human space where the cars used to be and i thought that was really gutsy and brilliant yeah, this guy that, jaime lerner the then mayor of curitiba was a very colorful down-to-earth interesting character innovative yeah. and he was very well liked by his people and he was elected i think he became governor of his state and uh after he was done big mayor um but yeah that, that was a funny story so uh, at first he knew his motto is, if you want to get it done, do it fast. So he did this thing over a three-day weekend. And when they opened it up, the merchants along the street were just complaining they were going to impeach him. And suddenly there was a lot of foot traffic, people spending time on the street. They went into the stores and sales increased. So the street, the, the next few blocks down the street, the merchant said, can you do our street next? <laughs> and it actually grew. And there are a lot of walking malls. You know, we are getting slightly off topic from bus rapid transit. Yeah. The reason bus rapid transit worked with no cars downtown is people could still go there. You know, somehow they had to get to the downtown to walk along the avenue. Uh, I think it's Boulder, Colorado and Charlottesville, Virginia. Where else? Well, I know one in Denmark, in Copenhagen, called Stroyet. I think I pronounced it about right. Burlington. Stroyet has an Bur O with a slash through it. Burlington, Vermont, Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders City, mm -hmm. and uh, I think they have one in Portland. Really smart. And, you know, those are spaces that aren't necessarily commercial. Like, they don't make you move just because you're hanging out. You're, you probably will buy something if you hang out long enough, but they don't make you have to be there in order to 
participate in commerce. You can just hang, which is important for human interaction, and that's where the artists flourish. <coughs> Excuse me. So tell me more about bus rapid transit. Is it um, super expensive? Why isn't it everywhere, I guess, is the next question. <laughs> well, it has grown a lot. There's, uh, I just looked this morning at a database website that says there's 167 cities around the world that now have bus rapid transit, and they keep building more, uh, especially in Asia. In China, they're just, you know, they're developing so fast. There are a lot of cities in China that are, have adopted it. Um, there's a company that's called ITDP that has specialized in helping cities adopt this around the world. So after Curitiba, they, uh, in 1974, eventually they got it, systems in Bogota, Colombia, which is a very big system. They say that 59% of the, of the uh, workday trips in Bogota are on buses, 59%. Here, it's maybe 4%, you know. So we have a long way to go to get people out of their cars into buses. But Yichang, Guangzhou, Vientiane in Laos, Brisbane, Australia, Cleveland, Ohio, Eugene, Oregon, a lot of cities have adopted it. We should uh, tell our listeners, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but you can get in touch with uh, our guests, Stan Sokolow, and us during the show today, and also in between shows anytime, at our uh, email address, which is radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So that's all one word, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We're also streaming live on Facebook right now, and you can see Joe's Hawaiian shirt of the day. Of the week, um, you can tell us, maybe when you email us, you can tell us what's on his shirt, and then we'll know you're really watching us on Facebook. We won't give it away just yet. This is Planet Watch. We're talking with Stan Sokolow, who's taken a special interest in the issues of bus rapid transit. Most of us are used to subways as a concept, unless we don't live in a big city. But I remember when BART went online, that was really exciting because it was clean and it was fast. And I was back in the D.C. area working in uh, Roslyn, Virginia, which is right across the Potomac River from Georgetown University. And the metro, the, the very first metro station in Washington, D.C., went from Roslyn under the river to uh, Foggy Bottom it was the name of the station on the D.C. metro system. And then it's expanded to where it's got like six or seven lines of all different colors now. You know, the, I mean, they all look the same when you're in the trains, but they name them, you know, the green line, the red line, the yellow line, the silver line. And, and I imagine that bus systems like the one you're describing could work very well with subway systems. They don't have to be either or. Is that correct? Sure. Uh, ideally, they should have one, you know, common stations so that people can transfer from one system to the other. Yeah. Well, I think we have some bus riders here. I'd yeah. be curious to include them in the conversation because I know that in our small community, it's not that big, right? Santa Cruz is 50,000 or something. There's this issue with the bus where the fewer people ride it, the less they have subsidies and the less buses routes there are. And then no one rides it because it's totally inconvenient. And conversely, the more people ride, the more used to it they get and the more they use it. So... I wonder if either of you want to comment on your use, personal or Adam, with your personal experience with buses, um, having lived in a semi-rural area, these two. I know at my house there's not a very extensive bus system because I live in a kind of rural area. So I'm wondering what can be done for those areas where we don't have that access to the corridor that we have. 
Yeah, you know, bus systems, the administration bus systems have uh, a dilemma uh, that it, either they work like a business and they increase ridership, and to do that, they have poor service in the low demand areas like the mountains and the, the rural areas, uh, or they have a more social aspect for equity, and they have people riding on buses that you know have three or four people on them that a business would say it's not profitable, let's close that one down. So they're always balancing those two things. So if you give the bus system more money, you'll get better service. How do you get that money? That's, that's the, the challenge. Um, we will ask you your own question. How do you get money for bus rapid transit when you have a bus system that's struggling already? Like um, we do. Yeah, unfortunately, the the sad story is you got to get the money either from some deep pockets like the federal government or the state government uh, or raise taxes locally. Nobody likes to do that, and you kind of run into limits in your local taxation. Calif in uh, California, you can't have a California uh, you can't have a city income tax. Like you can have can. a gas tax though, and doesn't that go to fund some public transportation? Yeah, this, this new uh, increase in the gas tax that went into effect in January uh, will have a big imp impact on cities like Santa Cruz. Uh, Santa Cruz has been so starved for funds, they've actually got like 60% of their buses are over the usual retirement age for a bus. So they're struggling to get new buses to replace the old ones. How about cities like Eugene? How come they're doing so well with all of this? Do they have a different tax structure or you know, what are they doing that we're not doing? Um, Eugene got a grant you know, from the federal government to, ins to, uh, to be one of the demonstration cities for bus rapid transit. So they created a system called Emerald Express. And actually, uh, in July, I'm going to go, I've got appointments to go meet with the people up there and go ride the buses and do a, uh, my own little investigation of how it's going in Eugene. And in honor of that, Stan is wearing this beautiful emerald shirt here, if you can <laughs> see it on the uh, camera, on the video. Has anyone uh, written in to guess what's on Joe's shirt? I don't know if we have a prize. Maybe you'll have to give him the shirt off your back. I don't know. <laughs> Not yet. Some kind of marine biology thing. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. If you want to guess on Joe's shirt, and he's not going to give it away till the end of the show, but you can look online on Facebook and tell us what you see. It's probably related to the theme of the show somewhat tangentially. Hey, you know, we were talking about other cities and that are doing really well with their buses, and uh, Boulder, Colorado is one, and they have an innovation which we're now talking about doing here in Santa Cruz. I just realized this is an excellent opportunity to plug that idea, which the city needs your help to push for, namely what's called an eco-pass in Boulder. We might call it something different here, but what it is is everybody rides the bus downtown for free basically and of course immediately people are going to say well are you going to pay for it well you pay for it out of revenues from parking of cars which kind of is just and makes sense and the question is okay what are people going to have to pay to park and then you got that whole thing again where the merchants want the cars down there but it turns out that if <laughs> they took a look at experience of other towns they realize hey they'd be better off without so many cars and with more people riding the bus and hanging out on foot so anyway we there are going to be important meetings of commissions and the city council in in coming weeks here so stay tuned for that on a free pass for riding the bus all over downtown. Oh, and maybe we have some music coming up here, huh? Yeah, perhaps we should go to a short break, and we'll be right back talking to Stan Sokolo on Planet Watch.
forget that bus stop song we had to play that on a show about bus rapid transit here on planet Water. but i was wondering rachel are you old enough to remember that song <laughs> I, I am i'm sure maya and tommy and uh, adam there are not i know st- anyway that came out i don't know when i was in high school or college back in the what 70s 60s even great song yeah yeah well there was a good question tommy had i thought he could ask it about yeah, we were talking about Eugene, Oregon and Boulder, Colorado, and I was thinking that both those cities probably have a fairly substantial population center, and I'm thinking here we kind of have a smaller, more spread out city, so I'm wondering how that will affect our bus rapid transit. Yeah, uh, well, actually, Eugene, in the population of Lane County, where Eugene is, and the Eugene greater metropolitan area, it's Eugene and Springfield are two cities side by side, um, they're the closest analog to what we have here. Their population is not that far off. I mean, I think, I think the county is like 350,000 and our population is 250,000 in, in Santa Cruz County. So I, I think it's a good example of what could be done here. Um, and but it's, of course, not, it's not so much about population, it's density, right? It, it's, it's how, how far close you they are. are. <laughs> how, how far close away you are from the center of yeah. town, right? And, you know, we do have this sort of east west if you want to call it that orientation of the population in our county it's kind of a long strip uh so that lends itself to having a long bus route running how do you how do you designate a lane on a freeway do you just like close off a whole lane and wouldn't that cause congestion in the rest of the lanes because there's one less car lane it sure would in fact that's what they did in delhi in india they closed off lanes for buses only and it caused so much congestion. Four years later, there were riots, and, uh, and they they actually ripped out the bus rapid transit system because they they screwed up. They didn't build design it right, so that was a failure. And uh, so you're it, suggesting a dedicated new lane it, or another place like a road that parallels the freeway so that it doesn't even yeah. bother those people who do want to drive. Some cities have got very wide boulevards. We don't, but like yeah. in San Francisco. Venice Boulevard and Geary, if you can picture those streets. They're very wide, so they they have built dedicated lanes, and um, other cities had to squeeze things in. Eugene did have to squeeze things in. Mm-hmm. Uh, some places the buses have to share one lane so that they have signals to tell the bus that it's safe to go on that lane the opposite direction, back, back and forth. Interesting. Yeah. So the, it does take some engineering. You know, you can't just wipe, swipe a magic wand and say, let there be bus rapid transit. But you could uh, plan ahead for it as you were maybe doing some renovations or taking out some buildings or rerouting a, an existing road. You could make another space for it. Um, but we are talking long term, I assume, that eventually 
we're trying to get people out of these individual cars. And if we have to, we will innovate because of our climate, I mean, or some other cost going up of being an individual car owner, like yeah. the gasoline prices, for example. Yeah, well, you know, I talked about the failure of the of the Delhi BRT. <clears throat> There's There are other failures in on freeways with cars. Uh, the, notor the notorious one was in Los Angeles, the worst congested corridor is uh, was the Interstate 405 freeway going from uh, L.A. through the mountains into uh, the San Fernando Valley. Oh, I've been on that one. <clears throat> it's just <laughs> a slow crawl almost all the time, day and night. So the state and the city and some federal money, I suppose, went, to, went into widening it. It was a major project, and they had to knock down a bridge. They called it Carmageddon because they had to shut down this freeway. <laughs> For a weekend to destroy, you know, to demolish the bridge and remove the debris, uh, so they spent over a billion dollars. Took them a year longer than they thought. It was going to be a four-year project turned into five. And at the end of the project, uh, and what the project involved was adding some bus uh, high-occupancy vehicle lanes for buses and and um, carpools, and then um, and some other off-ramp improvements. And so after they did this. $1.1 billion project, uh, they did a new study to see how the traffic had improved. It was slightly worse than before they started. So how does that happen? It's a phenomenon that is called induced travel. When it's like an, a gas in, the, in a volume, the gas will expand to fill the space available. When you take cars off of a freeway and make, or when you leave the cars there, but you make more room for the cars by adding lanes, other people that were taking the, the lousy route through the city streets see, oh, the freeway's running better, and they train, change, immediately change their travel plans and fill up that space. So the ironic thing is, if you made a great bus system, it would take some people out of their cars, but other people would fill the freeway. So it, it's hard to beat congestion. Kind of a classic example of that line, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> that's, There's been that's quite a, a bit of opposition to widening our highway here in Santa Cruz because of that phenomenon that, you know, you just keep expanding lanes and more cars will will fill it. Um, and we haven't really talked about the impact on gasoline prices. We just heard a news story before the top of the hour that gasoline prices have are starting to go up. And the last time it went way up, people did get out of their cars. Or the last time their salaries went down during the recession, there was a huge drop course because they weren't going to work and that's really not the best way to reduce congestion is put everyone out of work so is what you're saying that these buses are not really a panacea for traffic but they're just good for the environment it will let a lot more people travel without being fighting in the in the uh, congested streets um it you know it, it will probably have a, a long-term benefit to the people in the streets uh but it's not going to be a panacea, like you said, but it still will move a lot of people. Let's talk about electric buses, shall we? Since we are talking about pollution and global warming and CO2, how many of these bus rapid transit systems are electric buses that right. you know of? Right now, you know, that's a new technology for buses. It's still not perfected. Um, there are more manufacturers uh, developing totally battery-operated buses or some kind of a, a, a cheaper, uh, an easier way to do that would be to have a bus 
that has a small battery pack and it recharges when it comes to a, a station to let people off. It would kind of boost the battery power again, or they use things called supercapacitors that charge really quickly, but they don't hold a lot of energy. So they can go from station to station. Um, but bus, uh, battery-operated buses are coming along, and actually here in Santa Cruz County, they just um, bought one. It hasn't been built yet, but they've ordered it, um, made by a company called Proterra, which I understand was started by uh, a former executive of Tesla Corporation. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and how much is one of those babies? <laughs> I, I think it's one to two million dollars, depending upon how many features you have and the range. But for perspective, we have to also ask, though, what's the cost of a regular old, you know, diesel or natural gas bus? And that's about half a million. So, you know, it's only a factor of somewhere around two. Yeah. And, and, and are there advantages other than the environment not getting as polluted, which is important? Um, yeah, actually, electric buses require less maintenance. They don't require, you know, oil changes. And they have less moving parts to, to break. Uh, they don't, um, so they're cheaper to operate. They're more expensive to buy, but they're cheaper to operate. Are they quieter as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they are quieter. Um, although I've, I've saw, seen some videos of people riding in the back seats of the bus. It's still, you still hear mechanical noises, you know, and they bounce a little bit like buses do. Um, but they're generally quieter. Um, but they're not perfected, like I said. Uh, I just saw a newspaper article from the L.A. Times today that said that uh, the bus manufacturer that they contracted with for their electric buses, their battery buses, um, is having quality control problems. And so they have a lot of buses that don't meet specifications or they don't have the power they were supposed to have or don't have the range they're supposed to have. But one advantage of, of electricity is that it has a lot of torque at low speeds. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been in a all-electric car like Joe's car, uh, he can plaster you to the seat. We all have had that experience, <laughs> and we're all laughing the because extreme, he likes to demonstrate when you ride. extreme acceleration I don't treatment. think the bus drivers are going to do that to their passengers with no, no seat belts, though. They aren't, but actually the, the Metro said that, they're, that they wanted to buy, and they're still going to do it, buy electric buses for the Highway 17 express corridor that goes over the mountains because the bus has so much torque, it handles better going over the mountain and on the way back down it recaptures some of that energy and stores it back in the battery so it's going to be a more efficient way but also a, a, a better ride whenever i hear whenever we interview someone like you on this show that has such great ideas and they're starting to come online and they're just around the corner and they're you know another year or two away i always get impatient and i know that's just me but in the face of all these other news stories we're reading about how fast the planet is warming and other problems are coming online i really want to look to our governments to just insist that we switch over rapidly to electric everything we incentivize it every which way we can including with the consumer like we did with solar panels i feel like we need the hand of some other entity other than the free market to do this or it's because these city entities are not businesses they're public agencies right there we elect them to tax us so that we can have public good and i can't think of a better public good than clean air and lack of 
heating of our planet. So that's my editorial for the day. Yeah, Hurry up like, with it is what I'm saying. It's kind of like with a lot of things, if you can have a wise government investment to help get it started, and then you get volume production and economies of scale that come along with mass production, then you go down the learning curve and it sustains itself in the market is the idea. And this is happening with solar. And uh, we do have to say, by the way, that electric vehicles, electric buses, what's so great about them? You know, it's just moving the pollution out of your tailpipe over to some centralized power plant that makes your electricity. Well, <laughs> if you can green this, the electricity that's generated by a central power plant or even have better, a what I call a community sky power plant where you have little electric sources all over the place, you know, community fields and homes and shopping malls and schools and businesses all solarized as well as some wind and other renewables supplementing that, then, uh, you know, your electricity supply becomes not as polluting and then you, you no longer have that problem with electric cars where they're, in a sense, no better than fossil fuel cars because the way it is right now, the, the utility here still burns a bunch of fossil fuel. Uh, some of it, a lot of it's nuclear, a lot of it's large hydro. But anyway, we need to green the electric supply and keep that in mind. Without yeah. getting too deeply into the discussion of public and private, um, there are some suggestions that the latest, the newest iteration of some big, you know, overarching um, infrastructure plan will have heavy private investment. That kind of goes in the face of public transportation now, doesn't it? That is funded through tax dollars and other mechanisms there's a public goods involved in moving lots of people around. Yeah, actually, it's talking about government intervention. Uh, I think I heard that by the year 2040, California has uh, ordered the bus systems to be all battery operated, all electric. Good so for our, us. <laughs> our local bus uh, district uh, has a, a phasian plan to do that, but they've got other constraints they have to deal with. They got a grant to convert diesel, uh, you know, to buy instead of diesel buses to replace the old ones. They bought some compressed natural gas, CNG buses. And so they, they've got to finish using up the useful life of the CNG refueling station before they can replace it with all electric. So they've got a phase-in plan. So that so sounds like an example of a little bit of bureaucratic snarl that forces you to use a slightly dirtier technology simply to use it, it up. It takes time to make yeah. the transition. Yeah. yeah, it's not instant, I'm sure. But could we speed it up? You know, could we well, I goose think that around the country in some way that would inspire more uses of electric buses? Who knows? I, I think, think California's trying to do that. Yeah, good. But, you know, You're there's an amazing statistic that I, I went to a talk recently where I was just blown away by one city in China, Shenzhen, just through a tunnel from Hong Kong, basically, has 17,000 all-electric buses, which is more buses than the whole state of California has, and they're all battery electric buses. Now, the answer to that that we got from some folks around here who run the buses is, well, they're run by the government there. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, strict government control of everything. So, I mean, there's uh, maybe one advantage of uh, strict government control of things. But anyway, there you go. That's a pretty staggering I don't statistic. think you have to have, you know, an overarching government that impedes on your every move and watches you every second to have good, wise public investment policy about things like public transportation and reducing pollution and things like that. So California is ahead of that curve. Now we're getting challenged on our higher standards of emissions 
and hopefully we'll win. Go Bracera. Is that his name, Bracera? And, uh, and, yeah, we've got some people fighting for us. So let's hope they win. Another whole category to talk about here is this whole rage about self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and, you know, all the attention goes to cars, but, hey, buses can I've, do this too. I've and, been in uh, one of those at, you have? at the Chicago airport. <laughs> so oh, it's the, the yeah. little tram that there's nobody driving. Uh-huh. But, but that's yeah. only one example and it's, and it's on a very small little track. So, well, uh, But it's always a little strange. The doors are closing. There's nobody well, driving. I, I, actually, Mercedes is testing a self-driving city-sized bus that I saw a video of one in China. Not the Mercedes, the Chinese company. Would you ride in one? Drove itself 30 miles through a busy city. Uh, you know, I, I look at it this way. I have this little picture showing an elevator with an elevator operator in it. You remember in the old days, every elevator had a man there in a nice uniform, and he'd turn a, le- a, a wheel, and that would make the bus, the elevator go. We don't have elevator operators anymore. I think the day will come. We don't have drivers on buses. And, you know, buses in bus systems... 60 to 80% of the expense of operating a bus system is the people, the drivers. It's the personnel costs. Ah, who needs people anymore? They're so outdated. Yeah, yeah, we are getting obsolete. Yeah. (laughs) What was that, Alexa? (laughs) You're you're not going to have any work to go to on the bus if you have everything replaced. But I do understand your point, and maybe uh, we'll figure out something else to do with our time, like make music instead of going to work in a building somewhere. But in the meanwhile, we're going to debate whether it's safe. And the difference between the elevator operator and the bus operator is there's other vehicles in the picture, yeah. whereas the elevator just went up and down. So sure, it was a lot simpler environment <laughs> to automate. Yes. We've got a bigger challenge now, but they're working on it. And I always wonder, like, why? Is that because they're safer? You know, a BRT system would be more like an elevator because if you had an exclusive right-of-way, and the traffic signals stopped the cross traffic so the buses didn't have to interfere with that and you had appropriate safe detection systems to see if they're, you know, the collision avoidance. I think you could have a BRT line that runs without any drivers. Well, let's ask our young folk because they're going to be living in the brave new world a lot longer than we are. Tommy, Maya, what do you think? Would you ride in a driverless bus? I just love driving. But in a bus, you don't get to drive right now, right? True. You sit on the bus, and the bus driver tells you. Which is why I don't take the bus. (laughs) Aw, that wasn't the question. It's would you ride a driverless bus? Um, I still like having drivers either way on the bus. Okay. so I like giving people jobs. Would be no. I probably would. I, I drive with a lot of friends, and there are some really bad drivers out there and very distracted drivers out there. Um... Driving on the highway, you see people texting, you see people putting on makeup while driving at 60 miles an hour. So I might trust a computer a little bit more with a bunch of sensors and everything. I know that they're going to test them more. There's going to be accidents, but human error, I know that can be that human error can be relayed into those automated um, systems, but Sounds like I guess I don't trust, trust humans. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I mean, it might be an even playing field with humans and automated uh, cars and buses. There was one case that has probably caught many, many people's attention. Uh, this was with a self-driving car. Uh, it, you know, struck and killed a woman. But then I realized, well, wait a minute. This woman just, it was at night, and she just appeared out of nowhere, out of the blackness, going left to right across the highway just a few feet in front of the vehicle. 
uh, a human definitely would have killed that woman. You know, the fact that it was self-driving is kind of irrelevant, I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to compare the, the accident rates between humans and self-driving cars. Well, definitely humans kill a lot of people in cars every week. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you yeah. know, you got to put it in perspective. Yeah, and the, and the real question is, is the real reason safety or is it because we want to put on our makeup and text and not really have to look at the road and pay attention? I, I don't know the imperative that always spawns these things to get started in the first place. We just kind of like the idea. Well, as Stan was saying, though, cost is a big one. You know, if you don't have to pay drivers of public transit and, and as far as the jobs issue well i mean there are other jobs that maybe better jobs that we can come up with i'd kind of like to be a bus driver too although maybe my passengers might not like it so hey, much Joe, but with, <laughs> with, with a driverless bus you could be pretending to be one and still get yes. us there safely you just like do this like a kid and you know the little pretend cars at the supermarket but there are lots of other creative jobs out there so uh yeah and you know i see we have a call we usually uh don't take calls straight off the air, but if you have a question, you can relay it to Griffin, and he'll bring it in on a piece of paper. That's old-fashioned uh, coconut okay. uh, telegraph for you. Yeah, you're getting a special <laughs> privilege here. You better be concise and, well, he's gonna uh, and bring respectful. It, yeah, he's going to write it down and bring okay, it in. Okay. That's what I said. He's going to send All it on right. the coconut telegraph the old-fashioned way. And by the way, you know, we have about uh, seven more minutes for listeners to submit their radioplanetwatch at gmail.com inquiries and comments. You know, I was going to say that not only are buses, um, you know, looking forward to the future of self-driving buses, but the long-haul trucking industry, their big cost, of course, is in the cost of the drivers. And there was a, um, I think, uh, Coors had a self-driving bus that drove like 100 miles to carry beer from their factory to a warehouse in Colorado. Really? So, so that's starting to they, replace They had a safety driver in their as backup mm -hmm. but it drove itself and mm -hmm. so they're looking at doing that and tesla says they're going to do the same thing if the company survives i guess they're gonna have <laughs> to reinvent country music now that's just not right well the, the country song you know mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys it's going to be don't let your babies grow up to be truck drivers mm, right don't let them pick guitars and drive an old non-driving truck non-person truck it's a complicated, brave new world, but I do hope we figure out the transportation piece because anybody that's been in the Bay Area recently, it changes the quality of life. Uh, traffic changes people's decisions about where to live, changes their friendships. Uh, there are people I don't see as much because I just won't go through the Bay Area as often. I used to zip up there in a weekend because it was an hour and a half from here, and now it's not so enticing anymore someone said an hour and a half to go across the bay bridge from san francisco to berkeley is now common on a weekend so people don't go out it's or they could get on bart just gotta take the bart that's yeah, right and go up highway one up the coast anybody yeah. who is considering coming out to visit santa cruz california you gotta take highway one except during rush hour south of here towards monterey and watsonville so as we, you know, kind of wind down a little, are there places people can go to learn more about this topic if they want to educate themselves about bus rapid transit as a potential for their town, if they're listening in Columbus or maybe Chapel Hill or Santa Cruz or anywhere else that they're listening to the show? Yeah, uh, a great website is to um, go to the um, website of ITDP. That's the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Um, they are consultants worldwide about bus rapid transit. They developed a handbook of uh, 
you know, of a planning guide and a standard for grading bus rapid transit systems into uh, bronze, silver, gold. So that's a good spot. Another one is called worldbrt.net, which is a subset of ITDP's website. And they list implementations uh, mostly in, in Asia, but all over the world. Um, and brtdata.org lists all of them. It's a big database. Lists the, all of the cities around the world and the features of their systems. And um, I'd start there. And, of course, there's good old Wikipedia. Great. Well, thank you um, so much for being here. We've been speaking with Dr. Stan Sokolo, a orthodontist, retired come transportation nut about BRT, which is bus rapid transit, which could be coming to a city near you in the next few years. Watch for it. It's an interesting development, and I appreciate all the research you have done into it and sharing that with us today on the show. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. And uh, one last thing to mention along those lines, that town of Curitiba, Brazil, uh, there's a video that was made by a woman from Santa Cruz, Maria Vaz, V-A-Z. I haven't been able to get a hold of her, but it's called, it's about the, like, three or four, I think it's four major innovations that were done by that wild and crazy, wonderful governor, I mean, uh, mayor they had down there, Jaime Lerner, uh, you know, on getting poor people to work, recycling stuff uh, out in the hinterlands of the city, and then restoring waterways, and then there was this bus system, and the, the movie, which you can get, is called A Convenient Truth, nice. <laughs> Innovations in Curitiba, Brazil, so, so look for that. Or go down there and check it out. Yeah, go down to Curitiba. <laughs> but it might be quicker to watch the video. Yeah. And, uh, well, just a couple little closing notes here. Uh, as is often the case, we don't really know what we're doing next week yet, but we got to say something about Kilauea, what's going on on the big island of Hawaii. And it's uh, right now looking kind of like it's uh, not anywhere near slacking off. And uh, we may well talk with a volcanologist next week. We've got a couple lined up possibly. Uh, so, you know, that'll be some real planet watching. And th for, for a refreshing change, that's something that might be sort of bad going on in the world that we don't have to feel bad about that we had anything to do with. Volcanoes don't have anything to do with us, although we do have something to do. Well, the other way around. We don't have anything to do with volcanoes, but they do have something to do with us. And they're creating um, new real estate. I mean, let's face it, that's right. the only entity that can really make, you know, new land. And you can get some hot, de hot deals on that real estate. <laughs> I, I have but, some uh, friends who just moved, like the week it went, uh, up in big flames they moved Ooh. within 10 miles of the rift zone wow. had bought a house and it's fine they're far enough away where they're not too worried but it was kind of a timing thing where it's uh -huh. like <laughs> welcome to Kauai, b hawaii boom and I, I just saw, uh, wait okay uh, i just saw a um a disturbing video on uh, youtube about a landmass just on the south side of the volcano uh, which is has been and is continuing to slide into the ocean, and it moves like two and a half feet a year. And if that thing gives way, it would you know free up a lot more eruption, and it would cause a tidal wave. Yeah, they they were predicting you know like a hundred foot tidal wave. Coming our way. Lo we well, locally <laughs> in Hawaii for sure, and possibly here I'm out too. Of here. Head for the hills. Uh, speaking well. of new real estate and worlds beyond, there are a couple hot and cold properties you can spot in the sky at night these days. Uh, actually, pretty much uh, within a half hour or so after sunset now, there is a moment where a brilliant white light in the west and a 
brilliant white light in the east are at just about the same height in the sky, and they're almost the same brightness. Uh, one is Jupiter to the east, and one is Venus to the right. And here you have the three bears. Remember the Goldilocks thing with the three bears? One is too hot, namely Venus. One's too cold, namely Jupiter. And one's just right, namely where we are here on the Earth. But you can see all three of them at the same time, uh, you know, in the early evenings uh, just after sunset uh, now. And uh, so they're, J Venus and Jupiter are headed for a conjunction months from now, but they are both going to be in increasingly spectacular in the evening skies. So keep an eye on the sky, and I think we're about wrapped up for another week here on Planet Watch Radio. Yes, we are, and we would like to thank our patrons on Patreon, Alan Sinclair, Anne Dubrow, Anthony Alvarez, Barbara and Chris Wilson, Brad Hubbard Nelson, David Bornstein, Diane Warren, Elaine Hebert, Eugene Beer, Gwen Shoup, Jill Cody, Jean Harlow, Leah Harlow, Linda Snook, Linda Marin, Michael Saint, Pauline Seals, and our Alan Gladstone. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. Thanks for listening for another edition of Planet Watch. Bye. We'll see you next week.